0: Have you heard triactin?
1: Triactin? Yeah. Tough actin. Tenactin? <laughs>
2: do you know what triactin no. is? It's a new allergy medication. It's like
1: <laughs>
0: What does it do?
2: You like reactin? Yeah, reactin.
1: Yeah,
0: it's like it's like that. Yeah. It's like triactin. Like less of a little bitch. <laughs> we are now in the process of defeating Ooh, the
2: radical. Pieces of the, shit. Of the anarchist <laughs>
3: agitators, the looters and people who in many instances
0: have absolutely no clue what they are doing. <laughs> First the order of business. They just did a
1: little hand thing that suggests that I'm on my way out. This oh might be the yeah. Way. Travis <laughs> just tried
2: to pit us against each other. Literally, literally was like I know something you guys disagree on. <laughs> we did I'm going to drop it here. and It was actually it was Travis that disagreed failure. with cam and i on it and we we were on the same page so he's it's true Travis i thought i like i thought i had a
1: got moment but i never. did not That's no so you, in, two, you, you two got, are, you two you got you two actually. are inseparable yeah. <laughs> you walked around and found out well don't i look like a fucking prick <laughs> <laughs> yeah So no, if you get anybody out there has a podcast that uh they want an unemployed podcast host. <laughs> <laughs>
2: it's just going to be me on it because Cam's always going to be too busy and yeah. stuff. So, guys, Cam is on the podcast. Yeah, welcome Again. back to the river and the land,
1: Yo. joined by Cam, Fra- I don't even know what your name Cam- is now, Cam
2: Francis,
1: <laughs> Cam and Bilal Rafiq, special guest, <laughs> special guest and yeah. Travis Laver, uh, soon to be unemployed. Um,
0: Bilal Rafiq. Yes. Below her feet. And Scooper McGee. Where she is. Scooper
1: was around. Scooper uh, Scooper approached me when I got in the door. I haven't seen her all night.
2: She's been born control. She? Yeah, she's, she,
1: she's got things going on. She does. She got do. She's got shit to do. She's on security detail. Right she now. Is. The, cat the sheriff.
0: Way. We call her the sheriff. Yeah. yeah. That's
1: what I that's what I'd say, my cause my cats want to be in the hallway all the time. And oh, when yeah. they get um, out there they just kinda like circle around and sniff stuff and it's, yeah. they're literally on security detail. Yeah. 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 yeah.
2: Cats are cops. All paws are well, bastards. Well, hold oh
1: on here for a second now. <laughs> How dare All you? All paws are <laughs> Cats are libertarians, actually, but yeah. Fair. What is what is the line? Cats are libertarians, uh, completely convinced of their own independence, yet entirely dependent. Oh,
2: my God. <laughs> that's, true, that's so man. true. Oh, man. So, we just had white people taco night. We did. White people talk- White people tonight, you get
0: the Although it was the not, store.
1: it was not white people talk tonight. There was vegan meat. Well, actually, that makes it more that's white. Even white. <laughs> <laughs> it was vegan
2: white people yeah, talk tonight. It was like Travis came in. He was like, "Is it spicy?" <laughs> <laughs> okay, first of all,
1: I fucking love spicy food. How dare you? Uh, I made I made white.
0: fried, or uh, what do you call it? Um, fried shrimp. Yeah, like bang Bang shrimp. bang I shrimp. I can not do the shrimp. but can oh, do the shrimp. Oh, my God. It was so, so good. So it wasn't vegan. Hmm? No, it wasn't no. vegan. I mean, you guys don't the beef was are vegan. people, mm-hmm.
2: but... <laughs> well, we're proletarian vegans <laughs> in the sense that... I can't get away from the fish. I love
0: seafood. Yeah. Oh, I can't stand seafood. I am seafood. DJ Khaled singing bring out the whole ocean. That is me literally. <laughs> I've had mercury poisoning because all I ate was octopus for like 3 days straight and then I Ew. woke up and I passed out on the floor oh. and I was so sick and I was like I'm not eating octopus ever again. Fuck that. It is not. Stop. Have you her. eaten octopus? Yeah, I have. I love it. Like all the time. It's like my favorite. It's
1: disgusting.
0: Just the smartest fish, otherwise, I'm vegan. I was going to say, <laughs> the yeah. The smartest. Just, ma- just the
1: one that, if they had generational knowledge, would be the prime species on this oh planet. Oh, God. Could you
0: imagine? <laughs> and I like to eat the babies, which is the worst. Oh,
2: Jesus Christ. Oh, monster. But you're
0: vegan, though. They, For can, they can paint, goddammit. They can paint? Yeah, they can paint. Oh. They're so yeah. delicious. Shouldn't They shouldn't should have those delicious tentacles, even. So good. <laughs> Wow, this is the thing we disagree on. God. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> it's the low hanging fruit. It's the fucking octopus it's eater this over here. This it's the Caesars. <laughs> oh, the Caesars. You I like love. Caesars. It's, a, it's the Mediterranean in me. I anything I that has like fish clam sauce juice. in it. Yeah. yeah oh my believe. god. You
1: don't know, like Caesars? No, fucking clam juice and tomatoes. What's wrong with you? It's oh. been, like, the best combination. It's yeah, disgusting. It's like that's absolutely. <gasps> that's horrific. Is what that is. <laughs> that's horrific.
0: All right, whatever.
1: Gustin. Listen, it's a very
0: Canadian <laughs> drink.
1: Sure, my mom loved them. Fucking
0: gross. All y'all. <laughs> it's an Italian thing, I swear. Okay, well, now I'm just not a racist. <laughs> <laughs> the BIPOC. Yeah, I can't resist against food. Italians. What does like, BIPOC stand for, well. Oh,
2: Can you do it I'm here? <laughs> do it. Bionicles, Italians, Palestinians, of course. <laughs> Don't cancel me.
0: All right, so uh, this will be the last season. episode yeah, of the River in the I'm, Land. <laughs> We're unhinged. It's our last episode. It is of the season. Of our season. Well, yeah. we might, we might, we, we don't know.
2: of the season. <laughs> yeah, it might be. You can do that, but I
1: can't sing the twelve song. No. <laughs> I'm leaving the 12th song <laughs> do it. Yet. No, do it no, just no. do it. Okay, just do it. It's our 12th episode. 1, 2, 3,
0: 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11,
1: 12. Come on, that's a Gen X, that is like Gen nice. X iconic shit. That, I'm even <sighs> too young for that. All the Gen Xers out there are going to be like I, what jamming What is this into from? That. It's like Sesame Street or some shit. I think it is Sesame oh, Street. Oh, we
0: grew up with Sesame Street. But it was like yeah,
1: 80s Sesame '80s Sesame Street. Yo,
0: I just realized that Oscar the Grouch was a homeless Muppet. <laughs> he lived in a garbage can. No wonder he was angry. They Fruit. called him Oscar the Grouch. He lived <laughs> in a fucking garbage can. No wonder. <laughs> uh, no. I know, and they used that to teach class to kids.
1: They did oh, they did do that. Oh, really? they did really? do that, yeah. That's good. Was the whole yeah. point
2: like he was a product of his environment? Or like, I don't
1: remember. Don't don't quote me on that. But I know that I know that they did. I remember Big Bird having a, a talk with the child about how Oscar the Grouch just, you know. That we, just because he lives in a garbage can doesn't mean that we should look down on him. Oh. <laughs> and Oscar had a heart of gold. Heart True. of gold. He was a
0: nice man. He was just grouchy. He, so lived, so in he garb- garb- lived in a garbage can. Of course, I'd be grouchy cans.
1: too. Just fucking back hurt.
2: We need to do like a <laughs> dialectics of Sesame Street <laughs> episode. Okay, oh which God. character are
0: you if you're on Sesame? I'm Big
2: Bird. Okay, so anyway. Uh, What are we talking about this week? Oh, very
0: serious things. Like, actually, Actually,
2: we actually (laughs) will. Well, there's the genocide. There's the closure of the safe injection site. There's uh, (laughs) just got to bring that mood down. Yeah, we got to bring it down a notch. (laughs)
1: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So we're going to we're going to our main topic today is going to be talking about it's going to be a little more of a theory heavy episode like the liberalism one um, where we talk about reformism versus revolution and which one works and I think you probably know if you've listened to any episode of this podcast where we stand on this already but we're going to kind of get into what the history of that is what the history of that debate is and what it means for today and social movements before that we should do some updates so genocide still happening in Palestine Um, there was a ceasefire uh, the the UN voted on a ceasefire on a motion to ceasefire and um, it would the the vote was 13 to 1 with one abstention
0: Hmm, who was that? I'm
1: going to go ahead and let you guess. <laughs> and by the way, if people don't know, for the UN, it has to be unanimous to support these motions, and 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 uh, members of the Security Council have veto power. Uh, so if any one of the Security Council members votes against something, then it it goes, voted down. So it was 13-1, with one abstention, in favor of a ceasefire. And go ahead and guess, who was the one? It was the United States. I'm sure you saw the picture of the guy with his fucking hand up, being an asshole. Um... So the United States voted against, vote against it and vetoed it so it's not happening the, the resolution did not carry and uh, the one abstention was the UK which is also notable I think um, and everybody else voted in favor of a ceasefire so
0: oh the UK voted against it
1: they vote, They abstained they abstained, oh, abstained. Yeah. interesting okay yeah they were the one abstention
0: huh.
1: so <laughs> you yeah, know interesting uh-huh. we don't have a stance on genocide in the UK yeah no um, they would never they would never yeah we'd never do that Um, but yeah, so that, that happened. I think that's like, I mean, there's been a lot of significant news, but I think that's the one thing that like we should touch on is that like the tide has turned here, (laughs) you know, like, Mm -hmm. like there's, there's little question amongst, uh, you know, working class people where, where they stand Mm -hmm. on this. There's little question in most nations of the world, including most leadership and even a lot of the ruling class of a lot of nations has now Mm
3: -hmm.
1: come out in favor of at least a ceasefire yeah you know not necessarily the end of the occupation and all the other shit that needs to happen but at least a ceasefire and the u.s israel and i believe canada still is not coming out in favor of a ceasefire
2: so that's where we're at anything to add a couple of things actually I, i meant to touch on this last week but apparently uh the israeli government was aware for like the last year that There was an imminent attack coming on October 7th. Oh, yeah, that's right. And they, like, repeatedly ignored uh, warnings from their intelligence people. And, you know, they were just so arrogant and so caught up on just, like, protecting the settlements that they had this huge security fluke on October 7th, right? Mm -hmm. There's that, and then there's the reports that, like, many of the people who tragically died on October 7th were actually killed by the IDF. Mm Mm-hmm. There was a shelling by the IDF of a kibbutz, as yeah. well as uh, helicopter attacks, indiscriminately firing into Israeli civilians. Yeah, we, we mentioned that in the last podcast
1: because it was Israeli media that was reporting that, mm-hmm. and uh, <clears throat> which is its own thing. And then uh, it would it was came out the same week that two 19-year-old girls who were girl, women, two 19-year-old women who were in the IDF, um, were the ones who who shot up the command, who blew it up um and so they were they were being honored in Israel and then that news came out that actually they killed a bunch of Israelis
0: did they do that to frame it as a Hamas mm-hmm. attack oh i see
2: okay do they really I, i'm not sure if it's that or if they're just incompetent
1: yeah i mean well, cuz like both, anyone, i think yeah. i think like they they were so the story goes that they were just they were just told, get in the tank and start shooting. Mm, And that, you know, they just started shooting and they didn't really care who was where. Mm -hmm. Wow. Um,
2: There's been a lot of, like, discourse since this... uh, Since it's come to light that, like, Netanyahu and co. were, like, aware of this. That, oh, they let it happen on purpose so that they could uh, annihilate Gaza and get, like, the oil and all these things. And I'm like, maybe, but also maybe they... Are just incompetent yeah and maybe they don't know what they're doing and this was like a huge security failure well i mean so much of the idf
1: is teenagers right yeah. and and people coming over from all over the world that's the other thing there was mm-hmm. a big promotional thing on i, I saw on tiktok that people were like tearing apart where <clears throat> the idf was or there was some some media thing was was interviewing people who were choosing to go join the IDF from other countries and it's like uh, a a a large portion. I don't know the numbers, but a large portion of the IDF is just people from like Brooklyn and Switzerland mm. and anywhere else in the world deciding to go to Israel and join the IDF so they can kill some Arabs. Mm-hmm. Um, which is not the narrative that you hear, right? It's like, oh, this is Israel defending itself. These are Israelis. It's like it's not even Israelis in a lot of cases that are doing mm-hmm. this. It's Americans and Canadians mm-hmm. and Swiss people and fucking everybody else.
2: Mm-hmm right and on the other hand i also feel like from the top like the within the israeli government like they're kind of eating or drinking their own kool-aid you know Where like they're so overconfident like prior to this they were so overconfident of like their security state and their deterrence uh capabilities that they were like okay yeah let them try and attack they're not going to do anything little weak you know hamas like to the extent that like they just didn't care if they mm-hmm. knew about it, and they're like, oh, whatever, they're not going to get through. And I'm sure even Hamas was shocked they got through on October 7th and they got that far. Because mm-hmm. really, like, they shouldn't have. Yeah. From any perspective, they should not have been able to uh, get that fa- far within Israel for that long, right? It just... well, I mean,
1: look what happened during the March of Return, right? Where where people would get within within a few hundred meters of the border and they'd be mm-hmm. shot in the head. You know, like... How is it possible that... Exactly. You know, that just doesn't jive, right? There's something weird happening there.
2: Absolutely. And, like, I'm always hesitant to go down that, like, conspiratorial right. route where, like, I feel like it's mostly just, like, hubris. And mm-hmm. it's just this, like, racist idea that they're so superior that Hamas could not put a dent into the the, the pillar of Israel or whatever, mm. right? But, like, I don't know, you know?
1: Yeah, it, and, well, now that there's credible reporting suggesting these things, I think it lends a little credibility to... To those conspiracies right mm-hmm. even if they're not It doesn't completely prove them
2: right yeah, yeah I'm really interested in Seeing like what like Subsequent investigations are gonna Point towards in terms of This because yeah. like we already know that like The 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 policy of the Likud party and the Israeli I don't even want to say far right extreme right Is to yeah. bolster Hamas as a deterrence For palestinian statehood right to constantly invoke this boogeyman as a way to uh to to quell those uh ambitions of like national independence but it's like to what extent are they willing to go right are they will? i think they're willing to sacrifice their own civilians but i don't know if it's this like false flag thing where they're like planning it or, or 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 letting things happen yeah i think in general though like are they willing to sacrifice, you know, their hostages? Of course. Yeah. They are doing that. They're, They're carpet bombing that. their hostages, yeah. right? Exactly. They don't really give a fuck about Israeli lives, the same way that Zionism in general has never cared about Israeli lives. Right. Well, the, it, it turns out when you're when
1: you're fascist, uh, life is not really high up on your list. Um yeah. and, and I, I think it's important to start referring to Israel as a fascist state because they have all the hallmarks of it. And what do we know about fascism, right? It, the first thing they do is they target outsiders that they feel like mm-hmm. are a threat, are both eminently powerful and also not powerful at all and inferior, right? It's that that fascist contradiction mm-hmm. of the enemy. But then once those people are gone, where do they turn to? Like historically, right. they turn to their own people.
2: It's weird because they're they have those elements, but they're also not quite like a, a Bonapartist regime in no. the sense that they revolve they revolve around like. A central figure in that way Like yeah. if anything Netanyahu is on like very th- thin Ice and mm-hmm. I think this is the end of him I don't know because he always finds a way to keep coming back It's right? true I mean he was gone Earlier he this was, year Exactly, he was out and now he's back So but like he fucked this up so badly. Yeah. <laughs> and like he's, but, I mean, he's gonna from, be in prison. But if you like, but if you figure
3: that
1: the that the goal of the Israeli state is to eliminate the Palestinians, then he's been doing a fantastic job. So it's it's, true. it's hard to it's hard to know if that's you know like who who is deciding that Netanyahu has done a good or a bad job? Like right? from the standpoint of Israelis, he's done a bad job. Mm-hmm. From the standpoint of the Israeli state and its goals, its wider colonialist goals, I think he's done a fantastic job. Exactly.
2: Well, that that, that is, is that's the point right there. Because mm-hmm. that's the central contradiction that embodies Zionism. That that is it right there. Right. This idea that it's predicated on a myth of Jewish extermination. And of such rabid anti Semitism that they, out of an existential need, they have to have this militarized state, no matter what the cost, even uh, at the expense of Palestinians. There was a, what's his name, Isaac Deutscher, the famous biographer of Trotsky, who's like a, a Marxist actually. think that was his name he wrote a very it's considered one of the best biographies like ever called the prophet but he he capitulated to zionism after the end of world war ii and he had this thought experiment where he framed it as like you're in a burning building and you have to jump out there's a person below you can't blame the person for jumping you know because they're being like the palestinians or the people below who are like collateral damage Mm mm-hmm I disagree with that, obviously, yeah. for a lot of reasons. Because it's a fallacy, and they did not have to go to Palestine by any no. means. It was a choice, and it was something that was fabricated by the Zionists. But well, like, It
1: was actually an anti-Semitic thing, too, because Europe didn't want them. Ex- exactly. You know? that, that was a huge part of it. But like, <laughs> yeah.
2: for a lot of Israelis, that's how they feel. Yeah. Whereas the Israeli government, especially in this current iteration where to stay in power, Netanyahu has to rely on the most extreme rightist uh, parts of Israeli society so that mm-hmm. he stays out of prison and in this like coalition he's in they're having to go so far in like the just killing Palestinians at all costs side yeah. of things right so there, there's a difference there yeah. Yeah. we are
3: now in the process of
2: the are radical. there updates with SafePoint? So, Perfect. well, so, y- yeah, I, there are. So,
1: um, obviously, we talked last week uh, with Star about um, about the CTS, about SafePoint, and it's uh, imminent closure at the end of the year, uh, which is coming up in 20 days. And um, we, so, <coughs> there's been, a like, a working group of activists that have been getting together to decide, like, okay, how are we going to respond to this? What are we going to do? Uh, and um, during one of those meetings it was revealed, and I think this is important to update because we talked last time about how effective SafePoint was. And I think it's important to to note that maybe not as effective as we thought. Uh, so mm-hmm. credible uh, folks who know what's going on in there, and I've like verified this with people outside of the working group that we were in as well, uh, while it was used, it is used a lot for very important things and is in net positive for the community and i don't want to like pretend it's not because it definitely is and it's definitely worth saving and making better but it's not staffed by peers which we knew but i guess the extent to which that is a problem is that people don't use there that it's extremely extremely rare that it's being used as a consumption site and mostly what it's being used for is acute foot care and for um the collection of harm reduction supplies so you can go in there and get harm reduction supplies while they're open but Mm -hmm. Very few people actually use there. Uh, I was told none. Now, I don't know how accurate Ooh. that is, but I was told like they. I I was told by someone who know who would know that like no one has used there.
2: Not one person has used there. Yeah. I thought we talked about last week there was a overdose that was reversed. Yeah. So
1: so that would suggest that that's not entirely true. But the fact that this person who is like I say would know is saying that means that like it's rare. Right. Uh. And. And I think that's important to note, because I think like we were saying in the last episode and Bilal, you you said it really eloquently that like we we turned it over to the bureaucrats, and the bureaucrats fucked it up, and this is just another way that 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 this 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 that point is is illustrated in that mm-hmm. we turned it over to the bureaucrats, they don't trust people with lived experience, they don't trust people who use. It's very evident in their hiring decisions and how they staff the place and how they run the place. And that has led to it being less effective than it could be. Mm-hmm. And I think mm-hmm. that's an important thing that if, mm-hmm. if we go down the road of saving it, and I think we should, that that has to come with caveats. Mm-hmm. Like, exactly. yes, we're going to save it, but God damn it, mm. do it right. But mm-hmm. what, what
2: it looks like once it's saved is also not just like a nice thing to think about, but it, it is of prime importance. And that's what was neglected last time is we were all just like, "Save it, we'll figure it out after, yeah, but we did that, and then we we had this amazing, beautiful community organization, and the city really came together on this, and well, it's been less than a year, yeah. and it's 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 gone now, and it wasn't even that's it's I knew it wasn't, and I suspected it wasn't as effective as it could have been, yeah, we all, but did. I wasn't aware of it being like to this extent, yeah. And I guess a lot of it goes into staffing
1: decisions and, like, the people. And I don't want to disparage anyone who works there because I know people who work there who are very good. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot of people who work there who are not good and who are, like, very openly classist. Mm -hmm. Again, I'm not naming names or positions. It's just that's apparently that is a very common thing that, like, you know. Yeah, I won't get into details because I don't want to, like, I don't want to disparage. But, like, but I think it's important to note that when you hire When bureaucrats are in charge of hiring these positions, and in this case, the health unit, very much bureaucratic organization, was in charge of hiring people. It was not... Like, lived experience was not truly considered. And Mm -hmm. when that happens, you get people who don't know what the fuck they're doing, and then there's no trust. And if there's no trust, Mm -hmm. no one will use.
2: Mm -hmm. Right. It's not part of the community. These things need to be part of the community. And the way to do that is they need to... I mean, there shouldn't even be that, like, barrier between these institutions and, like, the people who require them. It should be, like, one in the same. And, I mean, that's the lesson, right? Like, we could look back at this and beat ourselves up, or we could learn from it, right? And there's a couple really important lessons. I think, though, the main one is, like, what we've been just saying. Like, the fact that when the working class wins these things, and when we come together and achieve them, we can't relinquish a sense of ownership of them and a sense of control over them for the sake of them a being effective and b being permanent yeah and b is i kind of like i think the overall thing we're going to discuss in this uh episode like uh during like the bulk of it is the question of like reforms or like what it actually means to achieve a win for working people Mm -hmm. under capitalism and whether it is like sustainable or even possible to do that in a tangible way
1: yeah Cam, you have any thoughts on the cts before we move on
2: from that so to to get into it are you guys aware of the meme bernie sanders killed rosa Luxemburg? <laughs> no because <laughs> that's what we're gonna be learning about today wait hold up bernie what sanders mean? killed rosa Luxemburg. What, so what is this meme? It, that, that's the, that's meme. the meme. The meme yeah. is that he did that? The, be- the meme is that Bernie Sanders killed Rosa Luxemburg. Okay. That's the lesson of today. It's oh. an internet I mean, it meme. makes sense. Thing. It makes sense. Okay, it, yeah. It yeah. yeah. makes sense. Yeah. So that we're going to explain. <laughs> Title of the episode. <laughs> well, that literally did not happen. Rosa Luxemburg died like 100 years ago. Bernie Sanders was probably alive. I, mean, I was, was going to say, he's probably he born was there a 100 years ago. <laughs> it was not <him>. but, <laughs> but, yeah. So it so, makes sense, though. It will make sense. It will make end. sense. Yeah, so
1: so what we are talking about, like I said at the, off the top, is uh, the, a, a debate that rages amongst the liberal left to the actual socialist left.
3: Mm-hmm. And I
1: think that actually the, the, the reform versus revolution debate is like the characteristic debate of liberals versus socialists. Like it, it is, that's the debate. Mm-hmm. Uh, because oftentimes liberals at least pretend to have a lot of the same values as socialists, but they believe that the way we achieve the world that we want is not through revolution or drastic or potentially violent action, but rather through reform of existing systems. That mm-hmm. uh, The, the exist- existing systems aren't that bad. We can tweak them and make them, we can get the world we want by doing that. Mm-hmm. So um, we wanted to have this, this sort of theoretical discussion about why that debate is, dumb <laughs> and why uh you should all be revolutionaries. And so we're kind of we're going to use Rosa Luxemburg, who was a, a an ama- incredible Marxist thinker uh in the in the late 19th and early 20th century. Um and uh Polish, right? Polish Marxist.
2: Polish. I think she was born in Poland <coughs> but lived in Germany and she was she was active within the German movement specifically. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And uh and we're going to contrast uh, her with her the person she spent a lot of time arguing against, which is Edward Bernstein, who is sometimes called the father of neoliberalism. Um, that he is like he was like the Adam Smith of, of that neo of the neoliberal movement, and and a lot of people when talking about the theory of, for instance, free trade agreements, will will reference Edward Bernstein as sort of like a key thinker in that logic. Mm. Um, so yeah, well, I guess we'll we'll get into that. So Bilal, you wanna mm. wanna tee well, it up?
2: It's funny that like. He is considered a uh, neoliberal thinker, or among that vein, like a, right? Yeah and, yeah. and one of the one of the points that Rosa Luxemburg makes in her really scathing critique of Bernstein is that I, I won't be able to phrase this as eloquently as she is, but people who kind of criticize Marxism to its core and kind of chip away at its core values, such as the necessity of revolution, for instance, in this case, will often do so from the standpoint of like, oh, I'm a Marxist and kind of do it with that language and be like, oh, I'm one of you guys. I am a Marxist and try to like use things like Marx or his theories to make it seem like they're antithetical to what the actual method is. Right. Mm -hmm. And, uh, this line of thinking along that, that, uh, we'd put Bernstein within is sometimes referred to as revisionist Marxism Mm because it's like really altering one of the, the key kind of doctrines within it. Namely the idea that like the capitalist crisis means that capitalism will be an unsustainable system that requires the revolutionary overthrow of it. Mm -hmm. So I guess to define like, the word, right? Like uh, reformism, because let's assume people don't know anything about this. Like, I don't know. We there's different ways I think you could define it, and. For me I think it's interesting you said it's like a liberal thing cuz for me for me it's not always a liberal thing it's actually Mm-mm. a slightly less slightly left of liberal thing Sure maybe social democrat Yeah well liberal. I think it is like the social democratic thing because mm-hmm. it's it, and it's not always like a conscious thing where people are like oh I'm a reformist the way that people will be like oh I'm a liberal yeah. or they'll say like oh I want to turn capitalism into socialism it's often just fra- framed as like pragmatism Yeah and it's like oh like in theory I'm a Marxist. In theory, I understand the necessity that we do need a socialist system, that it'd be nice to have a revolution, but like we're just not there yet. We don't have, for X, Y, and Z reason, that's infeasible. So we just need to focus on like what we can do now. And then over time, that turns into just this entrenched way of being where that's all there is and that's all you end up doing. It's like it's just, it it becomes about just the reforms and not about like the overall goal. But I guess to define it, it, it's this idea that. Rather than, as was commonly understood within the social democratic and Marxist movement in the late 19th and into the early 20th century, that capitalism required a revolutionary overthrow. Instead of that, though, we're just going to reform it bit by bit until it looks more and more like socialism. And ho- hopefully one day it will become socialism and it'll, it'll just be that. We're just going to chip away at its veneer. And if it's this giant block, we're just going to shape it into like what we want it to be by mm-hmm. bolstering things like unions by just you know these everyday reforms usually through parliamentarism yeah so. like the
1: the taming of trade unions into less of a revolutionary force and more of a what we have now uh, <laughs> oftentimes in, in big business unions which is you know uh, playing by the rules and not really ever going outside of that only striking when you know it's legally uh, available and not just whenever you want to um well so so i was going to bring up james baldwin who maybe we can put the audio in here because he says it so much more eloquently Mm -hmm. than than i ever will but uh he's got a quote um in 1984 he was on i forget exactly what it was it was a television interview of some kind and somebody was asking him about you know um you know what if you like maybe now is not the time like you know we can we're going to get to where you want it to be And, and he said and this is 1984 so this is three years before james baldwin died he was nearly 60 years old at the time and so he said uh uh, what is it you want me to reconcile myself to? I was born here almost 60 years ago. I'm not going to live another 60 years. You always told me it takes time. It's taking my father's time, my mother's time, my uncle's time, my brother's and my sister's time, my nieces and my nephew's time. How much time do you want for your progress? Mm. Uh, and I think that that's like, like, and a lot of civil rights activists, mm. especially the more radical edge of the civil rights movement, this was their fucking point. Mm-hmm, it's like mm-hmm. we are done with this liberalism bullshit. Mm-hmm. You told us when when FDR introduced the New Deal and we got more rights for unions. You said that we were going to be included in that, and we weren't. Mm-hmm. Uh, now we're sitting here in an even worse position. Wh- how much time are we really going to take? Exactly. Uh, and and I think that like that encapsulates it pretty pretty well. Is that I mean we've we've the three of us sitting here have all been told over and over and over again, not right now. It's not mm-hmm. the time. Oh, well, we're not ready for that. Just wait. It's you liberal know?
2: proverb is the liberal. Pro- now yeah. is not the time. Exactly. Liberal yeah. Proverb. But th- that's the point, and that's why like these conversations about history and like the origins of these ideas are so essential because let's be real, there are no new ideas. These same mm-hmm. debates that we're having in the 21st century, people were having in the 19th century, mm-hmm. and that's why you can go back to like Rosa Luxemburg, reformer, revolution, and mm-hmm. pretty much copy paste. Like th- yeah. there's very little different. uh superficially there is it's a different way of uh you know there there are some differences but in terms of like the essence of these arguments and these positions it's exactly the same yeah what they're arguing because it represents different tendencies and different classes within like the the left movement mm-hmm. um yes. i guess to keep going like with this this uh historic historicization what is the word mm-hmm. for that yeah sure whatever the word would be we know that's the word to keep going back to the (laughs) answer so so as we know like traditionally the labor movement had been about building an alternative to capitalism Mm -hmm. rather than reconciling themselves to it right and they had built up very powerful institutions for this particularly in like the 19th and early 20th centuries they built up powerful unions. In some cases, very powerful socialist political parties. And sort of the flagship of this was the German SPD or the Social Democratic Party of Deutschland, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. That's the D. Um, that is the D. These nuts. Oh <laughs> my god! <laughs> <laughs> Fuck. Yeah. So, and this was really crucial because, like, in Germany, this was one of the most empower or most important. Industrial nations, it had the biggest socialist socialist party. <laughs> sorry, I'm sorry. Oh yeah the DC, Yeah, it was considered. It was considered like an empire within an empire, of the working class. Right. It was. It was so. It was, the level of organization is unlike, uh, really, what we have seen like before or or since then in like a capitalist country. So this was like the country that was going to do socialism. There was no way it was wasn't going to happen, mm-hmm. but. It's interesting when you look at, like, the material and the political conditions leading up to, like, this polemic between Bernstein and Rosa Luxemburg, where, you know, capitalism had been strangely stable in in Germany towards yeah. the end of the 19th century. There had yeah. been a huge uh, industrial boom happening, and at the same time, the political repression that uh, the socialists were facing had limited them to only being able to work within like part the parliamentary system so with those two ingredients together people started to kind of just think parliament parliamentarily or politically yeah people like edward <clears throat> bernstein right, the guy we mentioned he's like sort of the the pioneer of this idea that like oh let's just focus on that let's just work yeah politically work within that system
1: because it's working because at the time that so rose uh, luxembourg wrote reform and revolution in 1900 correct uh-huh. uh and so the, the last major crisis that had hit capitalism in Europe before that was in about 1873. So 27 years had passed and Bernstein used that 27 year sample to go, well, that's the longest there hasn't been a crisis. Maybe we've figured this out. Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe capitalism isn't as prone to uh, recurring crises as we think. Uh, maybe it is actually more stable and it's made more stable through the presence of trade unions, the presence of conscientious employers, uh, and whatever else he thought was going on.
2: Yeah, like credit and credit, things, yeah, the like credit, credit system. Was a huge thing. Yeah, the
1: credit system was the big maybe the biggest part of, of his argument was like, Oh, we introduced credit, which you know, the delay of capital accumulation has helped and, and uh you know it really what was happening and Luxembourg eloquently points this out is that give it time <laughs> like the exactly. next crisis is coming and boy was she right yeah mm. <laughs> like yeah two world wars and a bunch of other shit since then and it's like yeah and not to mention the, the recurring crises that happen to this day and are continuing to happen
2: yeah like if you're alive today and you're like more than 20 years old like you've lived through three of such crises yeah that happened pretty reliably every like four to eight years the yeah. dot-com bubble burst 2008 mm-hmm. crisis which we still haven't really we've never recovered really done from, anything not even yeah. close to recovering from and the current crisis we're living in because believe it or not we are in a pretty severe economic crisis yeah. right now so this is a, a this is a key feature of marxist theory is that capitalism just does this it is inherently an unstable system and this is not something that can really be avoided it could be delayed and prolonged for impressive amounts of time at times but bernstein sort of lost the forest for the trees and he saw in this like you were saying in this one instance and he believed that capitalism was just able to become a stable system and oh maybe it's not so bad and let's just keep keep going on this trajectory right Mm -hmm. and that was obviously very wrong (laughs) and all the solutions to capitalism can be found within
0: capitalism (laughs) yeah (laughs) Well, yeah, um, so
1: so I want to want to talk a little bit about the role of crises uh, in capitalism. So Luxembourg talks about how um, that economic crises are act- are not accidental. They don't just sort of happen, but they're actually necessary for the system's survival because of this sort of mm-hmm. unlimited growth mantra of capitalism. In times of overaccumulation, part of that has to be destroyed for capitalism to continue. Because if it was just this, you know, upward line of accumulation forever. Obviously, we'd run into limits and that wouldn't happen. So capitalism needs these crises to destroy capital for periods of time so that it can reset itself and then mm-hmm. continue on forward. So uh, that's, again, another crux of Marxism and one that I think Luxembourg was better than anyone else at pointing out was just mm-hmm. that that role of crises and how it's, it's this isn't accidental. This is the f- it is a feature, not a bug of mm-hmm. capitalism. And, and anyone pretending that it's not is ignoring the entire history of capitalism.
2: Yeah. And, I mean, we've, like, rebranded it, right? Into, like, oh, it's just the boom and bust cycle. It's just a yeah. thing that happens. There's this, like, ebb and flow. But, I mean, that that's fine. Like, as a theory, I guess, if you're teaching economics, see it as this thing that, you know, is just, like, a wave. But in reality, what that means for, like, working people yeah. is every 48 years, you're going if to not suffer. longer, you're going to seriously suffer. Mm-hmm. You're not going to know if there's bread on the table. You're going to lose your home.
1: It's boom and bust for the for the petty bourgeoisie and up exactly right because for them it doesn't really materially change very much about their life on a day-to-day basis but for working class people it's it is life or death
2: yeah not much at all and like capitalism has been able to deal with this in different ways or been able to to adapt as Bernstein would call it and we still have discussions today about like what that would look like but I mean I'm not an economist or anything even close to that but like I don't it seems like even, like, the bourgeois economists right now are kind of shitting themselves. I mean, like, I don't know how we're gonna get out of the current system. Because yeah. everything they have attempted to do in the past has reached uh, a limit in some way. Like, credit is not infinite, and that can't happen forever. That's the lesson of, like, 1929, I guess, yeah. right? and
1: 2008. In
2: 2008. Uh, yeah. You know, war destroying the forces of production has reached a limit, and like we can't do that anymore because world war three would mean the extinction of the species because the nukes can't really colonize many other places to that uh extent in the sense of like primitive accumulation of new capital and new resources like we're, we're reaching finite limits mm-hmm. towards that so there's I don't know how else the system can expand yeah. or what that would necessarily look like going forward.
1: Yeah, the so-called adaptability of capitalism, and I've fallen into that trap of calling it an incredibly adaptive system. It's not actually an adaptive system. The things that keep it going are Bernstein-like uh, scaffolding that's holding it up, right? So things like, like you say, like credit. um, credit creditor capital trusts or cartels, uh, you know, when it comes from, like, an employer standpoint, uh, you know, these semi-monopolies and these kinds of things, they're literally just there to hold up a, a dying system, uh, mm-hmm. to hold up, like, the death knell of this thing. And remarkably, those things have held it up for over 100 years, uh, longer than I think most Marxists might have even thought at the time. Um, but, like, it's still those limits are coming and they're coming hard and so like not only are we facing limits to what credit can do what cartels can do we're also like you said facing the very real limit of what the planet can do mm-hmm. like that we're we're there now you know <laughs> like we're at that limit and so like that's that's the last contradiction that that won't be resolved right that there's no way to resolve that contradiction with it and keep capitalism because it's just not gonna it's not gonna work
3: mm-hmm.
1: yeah um and then yeah so there's that that idea of contradictions within capitalism is another key part of Marxism, right? That this notion that uh, that that all systems, all human systems uh, exist in contradiction to each other. There, there are contradictions within a system that resolve themselves and create a new thing. That's sort of the, the mm-hmm. central principle of dialectics. Um, and that the contradictions of capitalism will lead to revolution. That's what Marxists have always maintained. That's what they still maintain for the most part, uh, unless they're Bernstein-like academic Marxists. <laughs> like. Right more revolutionary edge of the marxist movement uh still says like these contradictions will need to be resolved Mm -hmm. you know so
2: right the crisis is a huge part of that because that's sort of the impetus that pushes people towards that but other than that there are really big or really important reasons as to like why that contr what that contradiction actually looks like and what capitalism sort of like achieves throughout its existence namely like like I I feel like the way I interpret this part of Marxism is like the the new system kind of grows out of these parts of the old system. Yeah, the ashes of the old. Yeah, exactly. Marx the way said, that yeah. like capitalism grows out of like the merchant class within feudalism. Yeah. Socialism actually is a product of capitalism developing, mm-hmm. in the sense that like labor becomes socialized and you sort of have a socialist economy at a certain point where there is like. Planning to some extent where there's a very socialized like workplace but uh, The question of ownership isn't resolved. So there's a contradiction between like the forces of production and Who owns them and like how they're being used, right? So that's the contradiction that needs to be resolved and the Mm -hmm. way that that is resolved is ultimately through this contradiction reaching a point where it's sharp what is the word sharpened contradictions Mm -hmm. it gets pushed over the edge through revolution and this is something that like i feel like for a lot of people in the average uh, or or, sorry a lot of the average listeners right would like think of this idea of like revolution as very like out there and just like oh yeah Mm -hmm. that would be nice you know maybe you see yourself as a more pragmatic person who'd maybe side with reformism but the reality is that like history is in every way shaped by revolutionary movements and yeah. revolutions actually happen all the fucking time. Yeah. All they, the time. They haven't happened Last year, here, but <laughs> yeah, no, but they do happen here. Like yeah. black lives matter. That's true. Was a revolutionary, revolutionary movement. movement. Yeah. What it lacked was a revolutionary political program that was able to go farther than, uh, and take power. Right. for mm. it's, well, how many? How, what percent of the population participated in the American Revolution that overthrew feudalism and the monarchy? About three percent. So I was
1: gonna say, it's about that that three point five. Ten percent rule, of right? the
2: American public participated in Black Lives Matter. So proportionate to the population, it was three times. You know, it's not just a quantitative thing as no, to what makes no. it revolutionary. But but there is, but there is that sort it of. It could have been.
1: There is that notion of the three and a half percent rule that at any given time, if you have three and a half percent of a population actively fighting something, that they will win. Mm-hmm. And that's like that's been studied over and over again. It's not like entirely accurate. It, yeah, three and a half percent is. It's called the three and a half percent rule. There's good mm-hmm. criticisms of it too, but right. um, but it is still, I think, an important point mm-hmm. is that. Revolutions don't need to have a hundred percent buy-in. In fact, they never do.
3: Right.
2: right? They never do. And I mean, like France has had revolutionary movements basically non-stop. Oh yeah. Like, yeah. They're, these things do happen. I mean, the they
1: almost had a full communist revolution in in the late sixties. Like yeah, that. Exactly. That, that <laughs> almost happened in France. Exactly. Like, Sixty-eight and then ago.
2: seventy-one in Italy. Yeah. These are like, I know it's hard. Where it's so steeped in this like level of capitalist like realism mm-hmm. where. There, I don't know. There's just like this doomer mentality that's over everyone. That like it's so hard to imagine something like that actually materializing, but like it does all the time. Yeah, it really does. When the conditions are such that it makes it inevitable in a way. Yeah, we we happen to not quite be there in Canada or the U.S. yet, but also who says it has to start here? Or a revolutionary movement would necessarily manifest here before other places.
1: I make that point all the time that i feel like a place like india yeah that's what uh, i'm saying <laughs> you know if there was a full full communist revolution in india where one seventh of the entire world's population lives mm. that like and and is and is in far more of a i would argue far more of a revolutionary point in time right now i mean they just i mean we we don't need to get into it because i feel like again you get your shots at whole episode talking about the indian farmers strike
2: uh yeah.
1: from a few years ago something that the Western media basically ignored but was the most, the largest and most significant labor movement in human history. And that happened Mm. like two years ago in India. Uh, So I think that like there is, and it's still ongoing. It's just not necessarily a strike at this point, but the movement itself is still ongoing. Mm. And, And I think that like, that's the thing. I think you're right. Like, I think we tend to think of revolution as this thing that's like, OK, a bunch of people grab guns and they go and start shooting your politicians and like take it. And, and, and like, yeah, there are revolutions that look like that. There are. And, and you could argue that maybe a full revolution to socialism would require that. Uh, but there are revolutionary movements that happen, you know, outside of that right. and then don't quite get to there.
2: I mean, know? the Bolshevik revolution was pretty bloodless no one died, virtually no one died when the, you know, the, the classical example of, like, a communist revolution happened, mm-hmm. uh, at least in Petrograd, which is, like, where the the bulk of the revolutionary upheaval happened. There was, like, a massacre of workers in, in Moscow when it happened by by fascists and reactionaries, though, who committed it. So it's, like, revolution uh, does not have to, to look like that. But... Right. Um, yeah, I don't know. Where do you, where do you want to go? Well, so I was this? going
1: to just ask you and then I'll just let you yeah. go on a go on a thing. Uh, so why? Why is it? What is it about Bernstein's argument and therefore the revisionist argument, the reformist argument that doesn't work? Why fundamentally isn't it a vehicle for true social change or for the, um, uh, the liberation of the working class?
3: Hmm.
2: And it's a big question <laughs> Do you have an answer to that? <laughs> like we could talk he about adaptation Can you ask question one
0: more time? What
3: was the
1: question? Uh, like why like, Why isn't Bernsteinism For lack of a better term Or re- reformism Why doesn't that work? Why, why isn't it uh, um, mm. A way of thinking about Working, cra- working class liberation I think
0: it's, Well I don't know I'm going to try to answer those Yeah do it. I think it's because the system doesn't work Right? Like yeah. you can't reform a broken system yeah you know it has to start over or it has to maybe not over but we have to rethink it I think that's why I think it doesn't work I don't know well I I think think that's a pretty simple answer yeah I don't know if that's it's
1: true and I I think that like from my point point of view Bernsteinism hasn't worked because he was wrong about everything every single one of his premises you know mm -hmm. and Luxembourg pointed that out in 1900 before (laughs) before it was uh, proven Uh, and like she talks about the, d- the dilemma of revisionist theory, um, that either the socialist transformation is the consequence of the internal contradictions of capitalism, which will eventually lead to its collapse, or the means of adaption will stop the collapse of capitalism by suppressing its own contradictions. But the contradictions don't go away. Mm-hmm. They're just being suppressed, right? And that, that's the thing for, for Marxists and for Luxembourg specifically that doesn't work. It's these ca- like, Okay, so trade unions get a little more power, Maybe that gives working class people more material resources. Again, not a bad thing. Um, You know, most of these things are not bad things, right? Giving Mm -hmm. working people more voting rights and women's suffrage and all these kinds of things are generally good, generally good reforms, but that they don't resolve the core uh, contradictions of capitalism. And therefore, at some point, and you may be able to delay it by a decade or two, but at some point those contradictions will come and cause a crisis Mm-hmm. and you know wind you back 30 40 years right
2: and that it's just like kicking the the can down the road exactly right, right. i think that there's a a limit to which reforms can actually even be achieved mm-hmm. and that's uh that's a big part of this as well is that like there's a finite amount of like resources and wealth in the world and the forces of production that create the material basis for the enjoyment of wealth whether that's accessed by working people or just sitting in the the pockets of uh, of uh, the ruling class th- there is a limit to that and uh you know w- given the inevitability of capitalist crisis when that crisis occurs those reforms are going to be stripped back by one yeah. way or another and
1: we see that all the time right now with austerity right and, exactly. and like we were just t- cam was just talking about how like Canada's turning into a shithole real fucking fast. Exactly, uh, and that's and that's exactly that. It, we have a crisis in capitalism, so how are we going to deal with it? We're going to mm-hmm. wind back all these things that workers have won over the past right. several decades.
2: It's not a coincidence that, like, Bernsteinism as a theory emerges out of a, uh, a longer than normal boom in yeah. a highly industrialized Germany, right? Where, like, the basis of people even being able to think like that or in this way. Was this seemingly uh, never-ending boom? But yeah. as soon as that happened, it, that was never even part of the question, right? Mm-hmm. And that's why, like these ideas aren't aren't new or old ever. Like they kind of just cycle through depending yeah. on like the conditions. But there's no question of this existing today because there's no end in sight to like the cri- current crisis of capitalism that we're in. Like I I, I don't think that the capitalist system has the capacity to sustain any meaningful reforms at this point mm-hmm. given like the extreme polarization of wealth namely and just the the finite kind of limits that we are running into i guess yeah. that's uh that's part of it like there's i think it's in lenin he talks about like the labor aristocracy mm-hmm. which is kind of the social basis for reformist political parties yeah. who do believe that uh, reforming capitalism is possible is they they tend to come from parts of the working class or the petty bourgeois who themselves like enjoy these reforms or have gotten a little bit more crumbs on the table or off the table and that has sort of changed their perspective on capitalism where like, mm-hmm. they feel a little bit closer to the ruling class and their consciousness isn't as revolutionary. Right. This is a uniquely Western capitalist thing and a problem that Western marxists have had to deal with is the fact that our working class is a little bit more ameliorated than you know you were just talking about india having the largest strike ever there's no question of reforms in india or no question of a labor aristocracy in a country like that where overall there's just less wealth than there is in an imperialist country where you could have some iteration of like social imperialism the way mm-hmm. that we have today in like the scandinavian countries where they yeah. have they do have a labor aristocracy they do have some semblance left of a social democratic state and a welfare state but oh well, that's being wound it back. is being yeah, yeah as the crisis of capitalism globally yeah uh is being is it, it is encroaching upon yeah. that but yeah, it's, both, it's both always finland, predicated on
1: both finland and sweden just elected uh, very right-wing uh, governments for the first right. time in a very long time, so that's that's going to be wound back. Pretty so quick. even
2: that, exactly. <laughs> and then there's the question of like political power, which I think is really really important. I think we've we've made this point several times on the podcast before about specifically in regards to like the New Deal, and how like that was sort of seen as like the peak of reformism, and you yeah. know today there is, uh, you know, talk about like the New Deal, the sorry, the Green the New Green Deal, Green New Deal, yeah, yeah, and kind of going back to that. But what I feel like. Is hilarious about that is like, we're calling for the same thing that we once had a hundred years ago, or at least yeah. Americans had, a hundred years ago. Mm-hmm. When the fuck did it leave, and why did it leave? Yeah,
1: which and, we talked, which you talked about in the liberalism episode, exactly for sort of the emergence of neoliberalism and how that kind of unwound all of that. Whatever, whatever gains were made, and those were uneven and not great, <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and whatever gains were made were have been systematically unwound for the last 50 years
2: right and to even get to the point where one could achieve reforms of that level the prerequisite for that was a huge level of organization uh, of working class people into political parties into trade unions into revolutionary organizations and without Mm. that leverage there was no question of having these reforms right yeah that was a prerequisite to this so
1: But yeah, like FDR talks about how the New Deal was a compromise between uh, where he he saw America going one of two directions, either toward communism, Soviet style communism or toward fascism. And the way to uh, avoid both of those what he called what he called authoritarian uh, ways of organizing uh, the New Deal was meant to strike a deal that made capitalism more appealing to the working class, basically, Mm -hmm. so that they would not have would not fall into fascism or revolution. Right. That was it was like a mitigation of those things.
2: Yeah, it's a way to save the the system. So yeah. th- the question is though is like if you get to that point where you could have a revolution, if it's necessary to do that to achieve reforms, why would you stop there? Yeah. Because any reform we make and you know it's one thing for Rosa Luxemburg to say this in 1900. It's another thing for Marx to say this in the 1840s. We're in 2023 where we have seen the confirmation of these prognosis mm-hmm. throughout the course of history. And we've seen time and time again how any reform or gain that is achievable under capitalism inevitably does get stripped back. What yeah. we went through just now in Windsor is evidence of that. The fact that we fought so hard to get a safe injection site or a CTS site. And even that was stripped back so quickly. As soon as it, like, before it's even out of our hands, it's already gone, and it's already being uh, done away with. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they could sustain that if they wanted to pacify the working class uh, so that they could avoid these revolutionary movements. Or right? They feed into the labor aristocracy to ameliorate us. Yeah. But when that's done, and when that well has dried up, and there's no ability to throw crumbs down off the table then the contradictions sharpen and we really see the system for what it actually is. Mm -hmm. And we could start having these questions about, okay, maybe it's time for a new system. What would, what would a a different world actually look like?
1: Yeah. And I think that like you, you mentioned capitalist realism, which I'm not sure if everybody is familiar with that, but capitalist realism is essentially the idea. This is like very simplified, but essentially the idea that we can more readily envision the end of the world than we can the end of capitalism, that, that there is no alternative capitalism is the only way it can go and even if it's going to drive us straight into the fucking you know into the ground that's that's what that's the only thing we can do mm-hmm. um, and it's that's a product of reformism right ultimately right. right like it it reformism is assuming that reformism is assuming that well capitalism is the only way we can do it so like we just got to make it better make it mm-hmm. a little bit safe like like robert reich right that fucking neoliberal warhawk clintonite who uh, got some fame in the last few years because he had a documentary on Netflix called Saving Capitalism, where he appeared to be a leftist, but it's like, what the fuck? No, he's, not, he's 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 the worst kind of liberal reformist. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, there's, there's a quote from the Luxembourg thing uh, from Reformer Revolution that's really, illustrates that point you were talking about the labor aristocracy and how the labor movement and working class movement started to resemble The more petty bourgeois characteristics Mm.
3: Uh,
1: and she says the question of reform or revolution of the final goal and the movement is basically in another form but the question of the petty bourgeois or proletarian character of the labor movement so basically that the battle is 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 the labor movement one of and for the working class or is it the working class lining up yet again underneath the petty bourgeois who uh, you know, are controlling those aspects of the labor movement, the labor aristocracy. And mm-hmm. I think that that's, like, that's an essential part of this. It's like, do we want control over the things in our lives and in our communities? And getting back to the CTS site, we handed it over to the bureaucrats, we handed it over to the petty bourgeois and to the ruling class, and they staffed it improperly, they made it ineffective, and then they took it away. Mm-hmm. Right, so what does that say? that reformism is fucking bullshit and they right. were never they were never invested in that final goal of actually making something that was of and for the community and for right. the betterment of the community
2: exactly and it's not just a one-off I already hear people saying that oh it's a cts site but like this is the pattern this is everything there are innumerable our education system is an
1: amazing example of it right mm-hmm. we don't learn about labor history in our education system why is that <laughs> you know uh, because reformists and bureaucrats took it over mm-hmm. uh you know Like you, you can point to anything in capitalism uh and and pointed it that way
2: mm-hmm. right so i guess the question is is there more you want to say on this caveat of this or no
1: i, th- I think yeah go, go ahead uh, no, i was side. gonna
2: say like i guess the question is like what what how do we are reforms pointless then do we just say fuck reforms and we Won't do anything. We won't go near a political project that isn't like we are establishing the dictatorship of the proletariat, (laughs) get the guns, (laughs) or storming part. Like, what is that the line then? If reformism is bad and we are revolutionists, revolutionaries, how do we navigate that? Because in 2023 in Canada and most of the world, very few people are there right and ready to do this like revolution thing probably more than one would expect and i'm sure you know i hear all the time actually actually i take that back a lot of people are like we need a fucking revolution yeah i know i hear it a lot but are people like (laughs) let's do it let's organize where there's something missing right there one of those chains and one of the links in the chain isn't quite there they're they're
1: ideologically there but then they look at their material reality and go yeah but i gotta pay rent so
2: right you know so like And people are fighting for reforms and that tends to be where people are at people are fighting for like single issue causes or Mm -hmm. single yeah whatever the word is yeah yeah
1: i mean personally and 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 you can tell me why i'm wrong to think this Mm because i'm open to that but uh personally speaking i i'm in favor of reforms that aim the boat in the right fucking direction Mm -hmm. do you know what i mean where there's like reforms that are revolutionary in nature i know that sounds contradictory but I'm thinking about things like harm reduction, for Mm -hmm. instance, right, where like true harm reduction done by the community uh, and done in a way that recognizes that uh, that, you know, people are going to use. And so we're going to respond to keep them alive. That's a revolutionary Mm -hmm. thing, right? It's also compatible with certain levels of reform, right? Because you can have consumption treatment sites and you can have these things Mm -hmm. so there are reforms that are aimed in a revolutionary direction with the end goal being the revolutionary thing right um even if we recognize that we're not ready to do that thing yet it's almost like harm reduction you Mm -hmm. know what i mean And I hate when liberals say things like, oh, you know, voting is harm reduction. No, it's not. Voting's fucking (laughs) stupid. Don't do it. Uh, (laughs) But like...
2: Well, there's a difference between the harm reduction and lesser evilism, right? Exactly. Voting is lesser evilism. And
1: most reformism is lesser evilism. Like, Mm -hmm. let's just deal with this horrible, awful system. We'll make it nicer and softer around the edges. That's not what what I'm interested in. What I'm interested in is, like, reform that is actually aimed at dismantling the system. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how you achieve that. And like I say, maybe that's... Maybe I'm wrong for saying. No, that. I don't
2: disagree with you at all. Mm. I think that's like the correct instinct because this gets into like just like theories of like political consciousness and people and where people are at because it, it's very easy for people who have like read Capital and all this stuff to be like, well, reforms are pointless. There's a. Uh, No point of anything short of a revolution, you know, to just, like, write... You end up writing off the entire workers' movement. And that's extremely dangerous because then you're just an isolated sectarian. And Mm -hmm. if, if you're a working person who is, like, honestly trying to organize to put more bread on the table for their fucking kids and to make their community better... And some idiotic le- leftist comes along and is like, "Oh, actually, that's stupid. <laughs> you should just form a vanguardist party and prepare for the seizure of power by the proletariat." You're gonna get la- laughed yeah. the fuck off. And of there the are people line, right? who
1: we know that
2: have those opinions. Exactly, right? there like- are people who have those op- who have those opinions. Yeah, and that is like, I think those are the people who understand Marxism the least. Yeah, <laughs> like honestly, because it's well, so
1: interestingly i was listening to this is revolution which is a, an amazing podcast you should all go listen to it um and they were talking they had someone on who was talking about stalinist uh realism is something that a concept we won't get into that but mm-hmm. but they were talking about how um you know that oh fuck i lost my train of thought entirely Want you guys We, can, we can go back to it. <laughs> it's there. Conti- continue continue yeah. what you were we saying can go, I'll we, we, we can back. go back
2: to there but like the point is like you can't go to a community that's fighting to better better its conditions and tell them that they shouldn't be doing that and that they should overthrow capitalism tomorrow instead. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Because that is so unrealistic and stupid. And
1: Yeah, so the, the point was that Marxism is a tool. Marxism mm-hmm. is a tool for the working class to make their communities and their lives better. But it is not necessarily an end goal worldview, right? Like, yeah, Marx had some suggestions about what communism might look like and how to achieve it but it was more about the seizing of power for the working class to decide for themselves what the next thing is going to look like. Mm-hmm. And so I think that sometimes marxists and this is true of like for instance maoists or like communism in in quote unquote communism in China for instance is that it's marxism itself is treated almost like a religious text. Mm-hmm. You know, like this is this is the this is the end all be all. This is our god. Whereas I think real marxists real communists real socialists see it as the tool that it is to bring us to a place where we can democratically decide what comes next exactly sorry Mao. yeah sorry Mao. <laughs> <laughs> we had some good you the landlord thing you might have been on yeah. something there was, i like that part yeah.
0: but, so d- does the revolution start with unionizing and
2: organizing is that where that would yeah. start I would say so. i think it has to start with day-to-day reforms like that revolution and reform are not two ends of uh of a of a spectrum necessarily and it's not like one or the other it's they're 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 in dialogue with each other there's a dialectic there and this is one of the most important points that luxembourg makes and other marxists make is that like you can't have a revolution without reforms because it's through the struggle of reforms that people understand the necessity of revolution and how they learn to organize themselves as communities Mm. and develop working class leadership and a sense of ownership over their community, Mm. over their work. How do you develop a sense of ownership over your workplace? You start a union. What's the next, it shouldn't end at the union though, right? What's the next step? Workers control, workers management, seizing the workplace and truly taking it Uh, over for like the unions are just like a a school for workers control which is like the ultimate goal of socialism so it's like reform pointed in the right direction exactly it's doing reform from the understanding that like hey this isn't going to be permanent yeah we're going to and that's i think the role that like marxist activists should play is to kind of be involved in good faith earnestly and fighting along, alongside working people yeah. and being like, yo, you're you're fighting for better wages. I'm with you there. But ultimately, capitalism is not going to be able to provide you what you need. And yeah. when they find that out through experience and they're like, oh, we fought so hard. Maybe we achieved this. But inflation ate up our wage increase or something like yeah. that. They're going to be like, oh, this guy had a point. That guy over there was like, "Yo, this isn't sustainable under capitalism, and everything's gonna get stripped back." That that's sort of the point is we it's a it's a way to develop the consciousness of working people Mm -hmm. so that they could understand like a because it in the short term does improve their lives, but b in the long term so that they could understand that like it's systemic change that needs to be uh, that is required because on like an innate level, human consciousness is like conservative with a lower C, right? Like, not not in a political sense, but in the sense that, like, people look for immediate solutions to Mm -hmm. their problems. If someone is having economic difficulties, their first decision is not going to be to, like, become a Leninist. It's going to be to, I don't know, ask their boss for a raise, something like that. And it's through this process of, like, failure to make your life better that you come to more and more radical conclusions. And that's what the working class as a whole goes through and that's how consciousness develops Mm -hmm. because consciousness is consciousness is also not in sync with events right it tends to lag far behind them and like i always think of it as like a a slingshot like the farther back it lags from like the conditions that they're in Mm -hmm. the far the harder it's going to like snap forward and that's how people come to more revolutionary conclusions is like they stubbornly stick to like the illusions they're in like you're you're fucking everyone's racist uncle who's against minimum wage increases right that you have to argue with in this coming holiday season we all have that they're against minimum wage increases well guess what when they're having a hard time putting bread on their own table doesn't matter what ideologically they are like you know tied to they're gonna fucking organize to get their bread because they need to they're 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 uh it's not a like Marx makes the point that, like, it's not a matter of like the individual prejudices of working people and what they individually think. It's a matter of like objectively what their interests are and how history is going to compel them to do certain things. Mm -hmm. And I'm totally going in many directions at once, but it's like it's about bridging these two things. And on the the path to everyday reforms, we learn how to form a revolutionary movement with our communities. Yeah. So Luxembourg talks
1: about the three principal results of capitalist development, right? She talks about growing anarchy, which is the sort of uh, continuing crises in in the. you know, the tendency of capitalism to ruin itself. Mm -hmm. Uh, The second part of that is what you're just saying, the progressive socialization of the process of production which creates germs of the future social order. That's that contradiction standpoint. Mm -hmm. Organizing along the lines of reform in the right direction, not to keeping capitalism going, but to to truly mitigating the the worst effects of it, uh, will lead to people seeing those contradictions firsthand and creating that new social order. Uh, and then the third one is the increased organization and consciousness of the proletariat, right? So that, that that's the next thing that comes out of it. Those are the three mm-hmm. stages of capitalism with the end stage being the realization, the, the class consciousness of the working class and then you know, the seizing of the means of production, as it were. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I think that yeah, that, that recognition that reformism is not the end goal. for for Bernstein and for for many social democratic liberals, the reform is the end goal, what right? When you
2: say the, the the movement is everything, the goal is nothing. That's mm-hmm. like what Bern's, Bernstein's mantra, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. Like, the it's the final goal was just, let's just make it a little better, you know, and not mm-hmm. revolution. Whereas, yeah, anything that's pointing in that revolutionary direction, as long as you can see the through line from the reform to the revolution, then it's okay.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And as long as you keep fighting for that through line.
2: Right. And also, like, you need revolution to get reform. Like, if you mm-hmm. are actually reformist, the biggest, you should, if you only give a shit about reforms, like, if you're Bernstein, you should be a revolutionary, because that's the only way to, like, get anything, is to build a very powerful movement. Mm. But there, there's something else I wanted to just bring up, just because I think it's, like, interesting, sure. is uh, just kind of on this note of, like, bridging, of understanding consciousness and using an activist understanding the struggle for reforms as a means to advancing the consciousness of working people. Uh, I think I sent you this, like, Trotsky's transitional mm-hmm. program, yeah. which is the the founding document of Fourth International. Mm-hmm. Um, he has a, a very creative way of understanding this that I haven't really seen, like, elsewhere on the left. I think it's something that's, like, unique to, to like, Trotsky's approach of political slogans where, mm-hmm. like, he saw he, he had this method of calling for reforms where basically, like, you call for you use the the fight for reforms is a way to highlight the contradictions in capitalism, and showcase how they can't actually provide reforms. So, like, mm-hmm. the, or uh, the fact that people need certain things that, but capitalism can't actually provide them. Um, I don't know if I'm explaining this right at all. You are, but basically, you are. the idea that like you uh, you you call for things that you know capitalism can't realize, but you know that the workers need yeah. so that they see like, Oh, that sounds sick. I can't have that. He calls that transitional demands. So it takes something from a reformist demand to a revolutionary demand. And it like kind of automatically farthers that. And I, I don't know. I just think that's an interesting way to look at that.
1: I mean, I, I think it's important. I think that the, um, what, he, what he calls the death agony of capitalism, right? Is that mm-hmm. is all these things that we can see in our society that, do not provide for people and we know they don't. Right. I -hmm. mean, when you, when you break it down, even to, I don't, I don't care who you are. If you break down the idea that, well, every human being needs food to live, but all of our food exists behind a paywall. Mm -hmm. That's, that's something that like, that is one of those contradictions. Right. And so in the reform of making groceries more affordable, you realize that, well, why do we need to worry about a thing that we all need being affordable Mm -hmm. rather than just provided? Mm -hmm. and capitalism will never and can never do that right and so that's Mm -hmm. that's what you're saying is that like by presenting a reform that can't actually reform it's going to lead to revolutionary exactly
2: that's a way better explanation that i was saying but yeah and like in terms of the death agony aspect of that which i love Mm -hmm. but um I, i i think that's an important aspect of this as well because i mean trotsky was writing this in like 1939 where like you know the war was about to start. Shit was popping off. Shit was really <laughs> popping off. And I think there was like a certain fatalism or determinism that a lot of people fall into, right? Where on the one end of the spectrum you have Bernstein being like capitalism will endlessly adapt. And on the other end you have the sort of uh, determinist Marxist. Almost who a nihilist are, Marxist, yeah. Yeah. Who are like, Oh, it'll capitalism is going to destroy itself automatically. I think that's what a lot of like Stalinists or like Marxist-Leninists mm-hmm. believed was that capitalism is its own undoing. Yeah. Whereas Trotsky kind of like looked at both of these things and he was like, "No, capitalism will always find a way to uh to keep going, right? He talked about how like the 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 ripe the sorry, the fruit of revolution was so ripe that it was beginning to rot. But the thing is it'll it'll always stay on that vine. It's never going to it needs the hand to like pull it off. There has mm-hmm. to be some sort of subjective and active component to actually like finish the system off, no matter how down bad it becomes. Mm-hmm. Right? Where you know, capitalism survived the Great Depression, it survived World War II, it survived 2008, it's surviving right now, mm-hmm. it's deepening it's deepening which is scary exactly and there's no (laughs) deep in capitalism
1: is fascism so like Mm. that's where that's where we're headed right it will
2: never not survive unless there is an active component that's able to bridge consciousness to the course of events yeah and it's those two things the, the consciousness of working people so like the subjective category and the level of organization that working people have and then on the other hand objectively the crisis of capitalism and the material conditions. And those two things are required to be in sync in order to produce that like revolutionary upheaval. That's, that's like sort of the key that I think Trotsky sees really eloquently in a way that I think like the reformists miss and then like, a lot of Marxist-Leninists miss by falling yeah. into like that determinism.
1: Also, we should just state in case in case you're unaware, marxist Leninist with the dash between not the same as either Marxist or Leninist.
2: This, it's confusing as yeah, shit. Yeah.
1: Uh, but <laughs> neither those things are not necessarily as connected as you might think. No. Um, but uh, usually
2: not at all. <laughs>
1: exactly. Yeah. Uh, either Marx or Lenin would be appalled by what Marxist-Leninists believe and do and think. Yeah. Uh, are, but you know, are
0: you Marxist-Leninist?
2: hell no i wouldn't say no. no no not at all no like i i adhere to like a lot of what marx and lenin said but like marxist leninism was a word that was invented by joseph stalin to in the most like uh, i would yeah. say it's orwellian but actually like orwellian is this like it's where orwell derived his concepts from is exactly. like the creation of lenin into this like god-like figure where they yeah. would just like. Bend his beliefs and his legacy to whatever suited the Soviet bureaucracy at the time But yeah. it had nothing to do with what Lenin actually advocated for Yeah, yeah, exactly And so, like, we'll post some links
1: uh, for this one I say that all the time and then I, like, hardly yeah. ever do well, We I should like post, like, the but, Rosa, the Trotsky yeah. And if you're looking for any resources on this shit Marxists.org is oh, yeah. such an incredible resource Every Everything that any of these people wrote is on that site for free and it's, uh, it's fantastic. So if you're ever looking, if you're thinking, oh, you know what? I want to read this Trotsky guy. By the way, highly recommend. My dude could fucking turn a phrase. Just saying. So could Luxembourg. So could all these folks. Really, they really all could. They Except Stalin couldn't still, Well, write. Stalin sucked, but no, sucked I, I, a lot I, of levels. A, <laughs> 3
2: a.m. one night, I like was like, I've never read a word of Stalin. Let me... Th- it was like embarrassingly illiterate. Dude. Yeah, like. he was he,
1: he was Trump like in that way, and that yeah. his like weird understanding of language was just not there. But, but Luxembourg and Trotsky, fucking fire! Yeah, <laughs> like they're both incredible writers, especially I, I would argue those two. Uh, like Marx mm. could do it too. You know, Marx was Marx was a brilliant writer, and Engels was a brilliant writer. Um, a lot of these people were, even the anarchists like Kropotkin and mm-hmm. and and, and, and these, they could really fucking write. Right.
2: I think Trotsky especially. Yeah, Trotsky, was, know, I, like, Trotsky was artistic. Opinion.
1: He was yeah. in a way that like, he was writing novels, but they weren't novels. No, for real. You know, like, he was
2: obsessed with like, literature yeah. like that. I'm sure he, if he wasn't like, into politics any time, he'd like write novels. Yeah. Right, like even like I don't know, his history books like read like movie scripts like it's yeah. crazy good. And
1: he was a, he was a natural born performer too, which is like another another thing that's really Trotsky's a fascinating. Yeah, we should do an episode. Of Absolutely, we should. There's yeah. a really good movie, and I can't remember what the hell it's called, but where this kid is it's, thinks he is the it's reincarnation. It's reincarnation. It is the called Trotsky. the Trotsky. The Tronsky, yeah, Fantastic it's a French Canadian film. Yeah. It's a, a, a teenager thinks that he is the reincarnated uh, Leon Trotsky.
2: So like he,
1: it's so good. It's such a good fucking movie. Uh, I highly recommend you should watch it. Yeah. Yeah. It's real good. Yeah. Um, we can leave it there. I think, uh, I don't know if we, we hit on everything, but again, this is one of those things like the liberalism podcast. It's one of those things that I think informs everything that we're talking about. Uh, it, our, our tendency I think all three of us on this podcast, and most of the people we're going to bring on, it is that we are we consider ourselves to be revolutionaries uh, mm-hmm. in the sense that we believe that revolution is not only necessary but possible, uh, and that that's the that's the goal we're aiming for. So, understanding mm-hmm. the the difference between reformism and social, demo- social de- democratic uh, structures, like the NDP, for instance, and where we stand, uh, it's sort of an important distinction to make. So we
2: we didn't say how. Before. Uh, Bernie Sanders killed Rosa Luxemburg. <laughs> so how did Bernie Sanders kill Rosa so, uh, Luxemburg? Basically, uh, you know, there was a revolution during Rosa Luxemburg's lifetime that I would argue if had been successful, that like we wouldn't be having this podcast right now and like the world would most likely be very very different and we could have avoided like the rise of Hitler and World War 2 and Stalin and all these things, you know, like the if Germany had gone, you know, communist mm-hmm. with Russia at the time, it would have taken most of the world with it, and yeah. it wouldn't have been this like fucked up caricature of communism. But anyway, um, that's for another episode. Take a shot. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I, at, in this revolution, you know, in, in which Rosa Luxemburg was like a a principal leader, uh, the reformists hired a death squad that killed her. Yeah they they killed her and Carl Liebknecht who was like her her homie and also equally I think a amazing figure that you know deserves a shout out mm-hmm. um yeah. They, yeah they killed her and that sort of represented like poetically the the death of the revolution the yeah. world revolution of the early 20th century yeah to so so Bernie, Bernie Sanders Because it was the reformists Yeah and Bernie Sanders is yeah. the so It was the, oh, the people who killed yeah. Rosa Luxemburg Considered themselves to be socialists Yes Yeah so. which
1: Bernie Sanders has routinely Identified himself as a socialist But he's the more Bernstein style um, He's a
2: Bernie-stein
1: Bernie-stein
2: <laughs>
1: Yeah, anyway. um, yeah. R.I.P.
2: R.I.P. Rosa <laughs> Luxemburg and Carlene <laughs> <laughs> Yeah
1: Okay I think that's good there Yeah um, as always follow us on all the things TRTL podcast on Twitter I literally never use it I don't know why I'm rate, even saying it rate, rate, the the rate show, and review us 4.8. oh yeah we got up to 4.8 that's great rate and review us if you can write a review I haven't actually checked if we have any reviews on Spotify or Apple I
2: think my mom writes reviews sometimes. if you're on
1: Apple especially if you're on Apple podcasts you can review us and that does a lot if, if we have enough positive reviews it actually puts us into um, different categories or people who've never heard of us will see us uh, and i think that that's actually like a big deal for the growth of of this podcast and what we want to do so uh go do that uh at the river in the land on instagram that's kind of where we that's kind of our hub right as on instagram that's yeah. mostly where we're posting stuff uh any updates in the community that we have or anything like that that's probably where it's going um Twitter. and um well, TRTL podcast. I don't really use it unless one of you guys wants to take the helm there. It's what? I
0: don't know. you're not on the Twitter anymore.
1: Ugh, it's just so fucking exhausting. You
0: love trolling the the reformists.
1: Yeah, they all block me though, and then I am going to find new reformists.
2: They'll <laughs> <laughs> never run out. <laughs> oh god. Uh, and How then, many uh, followers do we have on
0: Twitter.
1: Oh god, don't even. We're not even doing 10? that. I have no idea. No, it's more no, than that. We're at like
2: 25. Oh, well, that's for good. Something. oh, Let
1: me see. All right, all right. <laughs> let me let me just. Let me just see. You oh, I got ha- I have my personal account up because of all the Shohei Otani business. You can cut all this bullshit out.
0: I um, want you to get back on the Twitter and start trolling people like troll Trotsky.
2: Dude, I am just gonna say, if these people, like all these uh, socialist theorists were alive today, they would be subtweeting so funny. <laughs> <hard. laughs> so it's kings all polemical. It's yeah, all polemical yeah. literally. They're writing entire books subtweeting other people. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's true.
1: Uh, Reformer Revolution is literally a substitute of Bernstein. Exactly. Um, 28 followers.
2: so <laughs> not bad.
0: Okay. <laughs> Shout out. Shout out to all 28 of uh, you.
1: 28 of you, <laughs> you that follow us on. Fuck
0: yeah. you got to be trolling more.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah. So there, there's that. And then there's uh, the river in the land at gmail.com, which we've got some really, we have actually got some really good email correspondence oh with, yeah. with folks. Uh, and again, yeah, if you want to get involved in the it. CTS stuff, we're going to have news on that in the coming weeks. Uh, we might be taking a bit of a break in terms of releasing podcasts over Christmas, but uh, there might be some interesting bonus shit going up from the This Is False Era. Uh, so we'll, uh, oh. we'll, we'll see that. It's not the unhinged shit. It's it's the more uh, you know yeah, grounded we'll stuff. You'll yeah. <laughs> we'll see. It's not it's not that
2: unhinged shit. It's worse. <laughs> it's worse. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well,
1: that's the other thing too. Is that the plan is, and I'm going to say this so it holds us both accountable. And Evelyn, I know you're listening. Evelyn Irish, the former uh, co-host of, of This Is False, uh, she lives in Chatham now. Uh, and I'm going to go to Chatham over Christmas and we're going to record a This Is False episode in order to put it up on the feed. So I don't know if that's going to come out right at Christmas or whatever, but that's that's the plan is that we're going to... and Because Evelyn also, uh, she she designed our logo, which we've never mentioned before because yeah, I was going to mention it on that podcast. Evelyn. Yeah, so uh, she's very much so still good. in the river and the land sphere if mm-hmm. you were wondering what happened to Evelyn Irish but uh, we're going to go reconnect and we're going to put that up at some point too so anyway long winded goodbye here but uh, oh,
3: happy holidays we are now in the process oh, okay, of okay, the radical left the Marxists the anarchists the agitators the looters and people who in many instances have absolutely what they are doing